coming up. He trains prisoners, business leaders, correctional officers, law enforcement, and other public safety professionals in mindfulness-based approaches to wellness and resiliency. But first... Welcome to Imagine Peace, the podcast that invites you on a transformative journey toward a world filled with harmony and understanding. Together, let's ignite the flame of peace within ourselves and radiate it outward so we can have a future where unity prevails. This is Imagine Peace, where dreams become reality. Join us as we explore the power of compassion, the beauty of diversity, and the potential for positive change. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of Imagine Peace. I'm Marbeth Dunn with my beautiful partner, Terry Angel. And today we have a very amazing, wonderful, fabulous guest, a Fleet Mall, PhD. He's an author, meditation teacher, social entrepreneur, business consultant, executive coach and trainer who works at the nexus of personal and social transformation. He is an Akarya senior Dharma teacher in the global Shambhala meditation community and a Roshi, a Zen master, in the International Zen Peacemaker Order, Dr. Maul founded Prison Mindfulness Institute and National Prison Hospice Association and co-founded the Rwanda Bearing Witness Retreat, the Center of Mindfulness and Public Safety, and the Engaged Mindfulness Institute. He trains prisoners, business leaders, correctional officers, law enforcement, and other public safety professionals in mindfulness-based approaches to wellness and resiliency. He offers business consulting and executive coaching through Windhorse seminars and consulting and online seminars and summits through HeartMind Institute. He's the author of Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Your Highest Purpose and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good and Dharma in Hell, the Prison Writings of Fleet Mall. So, wow, that is quite, quite a bio. And um, I know that you also have had bearing witness retreats in Auschwitz. Would you like to start there and tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, thank you for having me today. And uh, great to connect with your audience, with you and your audience. And uh, I've been going to uh, Auschwitz for over 20 years. Uh, I've been one of the leaders of a retreat there that we call a Bearing Witness Retreat, the Auschwitz Beer Canal Bearing Witness Retreat. It was started by my Zen teacher, Roshi Bernie Glassman. Uh, he went there and I think around 94, went to a interfaith or multi-faith event there and had an experience of of feeling like the place was that there was a lot of sort of uh, unfinished spiritual energy there, a lot of disembodied spirits, a lot of people needing to be remembered and healed. And he vowed to bring a retreat there, a healing retreat there. And so two years later, he managed to do the first one. There were about 150 people from all over North America and Europe. And and uh, and we've been coming ever since. The first one was in 1996. I first went, I was uh, still incarcerated at that time. So I think I got out in 1999, and I think the first time I went was probably 2000 or 2001, as soon as I could get a passport and go, because it was very much a rite of passage within the Zen peacemaker tradition that I was practicing in. 
And um, yeah, I've been going ever since. And uh, it's an incredibly powerful retreat. Uh, the people that come each other each year are, again, from all over North America and uh, Europe, but also from the Middle East, uh, from Latin America, from Asia. And many people come to the retreat who uh, are of Jewish descent and uh, who have a family history with the Holocaust and even in particular with Auschwitz. Uh, we also have a lot of uh, German participants who have their own, obviously, history. And we've even had some over the years who had relatives uh, who were uh, connected with the Nazi party or even in a few cases, some relatives who served as uh, guards at the camps. Wow. Um, and we've almost always had survivors with us. Now, there's very few survivors left. Um, those who are still with us were young children when they're in the camp. Um, we, uh, one of them, uh, the the uh, mother of a, of a business client of mine and friend, um, uh, joined us uh, in 2020 or 2020. Uh, when we did an on kind of hybrid online and and in person version because few people could travel at that time, um, but uh, anyway, there there are not many survivors left. But but during my more than twenty years of coming, we've almost always had one or two uh, survivors who literally spent time in that camp uh, with us on the retreat. So it's a very very powerful experience. People come out of that retreat um, inspired to work to prevent genocide in the world, to prevent war and conflict, uh, to do good work in the world, to do peace work. And so it's been kind of a font of all kinds of projects and and, and peace work around the world. Uh, strong connection with the Middle East. We've had both uh, Christian and Islamic Palestinians come, and we've had Israeli uh, Jews come, and we've had Palestinians who were Israeli citizens and who were not. It's hard for those who are not to get passports, but we have managed to get a a few of our friends there to be able to come from time to time. And and of course, we were over there just recently in the middle of this terrible conflict that's happening uh, in Gaza and uh, this horrific, uh, really unspeakable conflict. And and uh, so none of our uh, Palestinian or Israeli friends were able to come. Uh, one couple who, or, who've been very involved in the leadership team like myself and have been coming every year for quite some time, uh, wanted to stay there and continue their peace work on the ground. They felt they were very needed. They were doing relief work and peace work. And, and, um, but it's a very, very powerful experience. We actually spend almost all day in the camps uh, for five days. Uh, we stay in a place called the dialogue center, which we can walk to the camps from there. It's very close. Uh, and uh, we're in, there's a lot of processes. We're in small, small sharing circles every morning and in the camps, there's various, uh, ceremonies and religious uh, ceremonies and secular ceremonies and di different different ways of bearing witness to the reality of what happened there and uh, so it's a deep experience yeah wow yeah that's that sounds so amazing and and thank you for the work that you're doing in regards to peace so let me ask you what does world peace mean to you well boy that's a that's uh, a deeper question than one might one might think right off the bat. Yeah. I think it's it's impossible to um, to uh, kind of not connect justice and peace. Um, you know, we could ask everybody in the world to just vow right now, just be peaceful and don't 
argue and don't go to war and don't be in conflict. But those who are in very oppressed situations would say, well, that's just going to perpetuate the status quo, right? So, um, uh, you know, and yet there are justice movements that are highly unpeaceful. And I think maybe, you know, uh, maybe they win some battles, but I'm not sure if they're winning or losing the war or if they're really, you know, moving us closer to peace or not. So I think there has to be some balance. I think there has to be a balance of peace work and justice work. You know, Martin Luther King very famously said something, I'm paraphrasing here. He said, uh, love without power is weak and power without love is something like just brutal or aggressive or violence. So we need that balance of both uh, love and power of, of peace and, uh, and justice. So I think when we can, the more we can develop uh, uh, a world where we're never gonna, uh, never, everybody's not gonna have exactly the same opportunities and people aren't the same and we all have different backgrounds and talents and possibilities, but, but to even the playing field as much as we possibly can. And to have a global society as well as our in our various communities and countries where clearly there is a momentum towards evening the playing field, where there's a strong collective intent to make the playing field as even for everyone as possible, that everyone has access to resources and everyone who's willing to, uh, you know, step up and do their part and moving their own life forward has the opportunity to do that. And so that that's a big part of it. It also has to do with healing our relationship with the planet and uh, and dealing with human-caused climate change and uh, because, you know, we're not in a peaceful relationship with our own home, Mother Earth, and 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 the effects of human-caused climate change are just going to exacerbate human conflict. Um, and so we really need to deal with all these things, climate justice, social justice, economic justice, and then also learn the tools for peacemaking. Learn how to be in dialogue with each other. I mean, it, it seems like, in, at least in where I live in the U.S., uh, I think you all live in the U.S. as well, um, you know, we're doing just the opposite right now. We're not able to have conversations with each other. And our, our commons and political landscape has become so divisive and so polarized. There's a wonderful organization out there. I think it's called, uh, I think the name changed a bit. It's it has to do with that phrase, our better angels. So it may be called better angels or something like that. Uh, and they have these uh, these blue, red or red, blue programs. Uh, so they're bringing people across political divides to have dialogue, but they don't just bring them together. They put them through trainings and train them how to be in dialogue with people you disagree with, people who hold very different opinions and how to have productive dialogue, right? So I think we all need training in that. I, I don't think you can expect to have peace or justice or the combination of the two without education and training. We have to learn how to do this. At the most basic level, I mean, we have a big, I know your organization has a big, uh, called the BHAG, Big Hairy Audacious Goal. They call it, you know, a huge goal. Um, we have one as well. And uh, uh, our goal is to reach a billion people with self-regulation and co-regulation skills in the next two decades. Now that's pretty huge. Uh, if we get anywhere close to that, it would be huge. But, uh, you know, we all need the skills to learn to self-regulate our own autonomic nervous system, our own physiology, which allows us to regulate our own emotions, which allows us to regulate our behaviors, which allows us to really be in the driver's seat of our own life, to be in a self-leadership position. And the more we're able to do that, we naturally develop discernment and wisdom. And we're going we're gonna to begin to operate in our own long-term interest which generally is works out to be in the interest of everyone else because long-term we're all interconnected, right? So in a short term, it might 
feel, you know, I, I might, you know, feel like uh, I can get ahead by taking advantage of someone or it might feel, you know, good to I'm really angry they hit somebody or something. But is that really in my long term interest? No, it's it's going to it's really I mean, I could end up in jail. I could end up in court. But even even when I do things to take advantage, it's going to create ripple effects and uh, that end up you know, even disadvantaging me at some point and, you know, just from a purely self-interest point of view. So our long-term self-interest is always in the interest of everyone. And and so, you know, if we can learn to self-regulate, we're, we're going to start operating in our own because we're getting better data and we're, we're accessing our own innate intelligence. So we're going to start operating in ways that are, that are wiser. And then our ability to self-regulate, actually the same neural networks involved in in deepening our internal perception, interoceptive awareness, the in awareness of the internal landscape of the body, which is what really helps us self-regulate our own autonomic nervous system, our own physiology. The same neural networks are involved in our ability to create connection with each other and to co-regulate with others. I love uh, uh, Stephen Porges, Dr. Stephen Porges' polyvagal work, and he talks about when we have our social engagement system online, well, that means we're communicating safety, we're communicating connection, we're communicating relationship. And, you know, we can do that even in the midst of a very challenging situation to still learn how to uh, bring my best self and be in a relational responsive mode and not get triggered back into that fear and survival reactive mode, right? Or even recognize what I am and learn how to turn it around and get myself back into that relational responsive mode where my social engagement system is online. And when that happens, it invites others. It invites others to have their social engagement system online. So, I mean, we've all had the experience when we met somebody, we just connected right after that. We had this amazing conversation or maybe even somebody we know well, but there was just a moment for somebody we came together and there was just this flow. We had this beautiful, well, that's natural organic co-regulation that's happening. There's a whole neurobiological process. The oxytocin is being released and we're, we're, we're feeling safe with each other. There's rapport, there's connection. So we can learn how to do that. These are trainable skills. So imagine a world where more and more human beings have the ability to self-regulate, in their, even in their own enlightened self-interest, and then how to co-regulate effectively with these others so we can all be getting our needs met in reasonable ways, uh, uh, in, in win-win ways. Mm -hmm. Love it. I totally love it. So on another note, I know you founded the Prison Mindfulness Institute and National Prison Hospice Association. Can you tell us the backstory on that? Yes, well, uh, I spent 14 years in a maximum security prison on drug charges. I was a baby boomer that came up through the 1960s and it came of age in the 60s. And I kind of a classic angry young man arrived in adolescence with a big hole in my gut. I mean, I grew up in a basically good Midwestern Roman Catholic family, but we had alcoholism in the family. And so one of my parents, you know, sometimes showed up as the wonderful, loving parent, sometimes as this really scary, rageaholic, alcoholic. And, you know, that started when I was very young. So that creates this real splitting, you know, in you and and uh, on many, many levels. So, you know, by the time I was a young adult and in late adolescence, I just had this raging hole in my gut and anger and, and trauma from that. And, uh, you know, but I'd still gotten a decent foundation and my family did have good values. So it was a mixed bag, like it is for a lot of us. And uh, so I, I graduated from high school in 1968, which one of the most tumultuous years in U.S. history, the, the assassination of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, the Kent State uh, killings, uh, and, and just the, the, the um, racial, uh, was sometimes called riots, sometimes called rebellions, 
uh, had been happening since 1965. I grew up in St. Louis. We had we had uh, uh, you know upheavals and and uh, every summer and and people were scared and so I I grew up in that context and and you know I just ended up going headlong. I really lost faith in the culture that was being presented to me, and so I went headlong into the counterculture of the time and with no guidance, right? We kind of threw out the rule book and we we're making a big mess of things, but I knew I couldn't go back to that world that was being presented to me because I didn't believe in it anymore. So I was headlong into that world of, you know, drug, sex, and rock and roll and, and radical politics and just all the rest of it. And it's some, you know, I was also looking for something real. I, I, when I was a child, I'd felt very plugged into the world. Like the world was kind of magical and real and Somewhere around starting school, it just went to gray tones, and I could never make peace with that. And I don't know whether it's just a natural developmental process or whether it had to do with the alcoholism on my family, but I wanted that that being plugged in. I wanted the magic back. And of course, you know, you find some maybe partially real elements, but kind of mirage elements of that in, in drug, sex, and rock and roll and all that stuff. Uh, but if you have an addictive propensity, then you're set up for addiction and all kinds of problems, right? So... You know, at some point I realized that wasn't going anywhere, and I I left the country. I left the country looking for something real, something genuine. And it was also when when Nixon was reelected in 1972. I just could not handle being in the country anymore, so I left and started traveling in Latin America as an expat and and living down there. Eventually, as a way to to not have to go back home to stay down there and have some money, I got into small scale drug smuggling as and I justified it with all this us versus them thinking, and. Um, Eventually, I came back to the States and got a master's degree, a, a, a deep three-year clinical training program integrating Buddhist and Western psychology and training to work with people who were having severe disturbance, schizophrenia, psychosis, very deep program grounded in meditation, but both Western and and, uh, and Eastern methodologies and um, of psychotherapy and meditation and so forth. And But I still had this shadow thing going on, involvement with drugs and alcohol, and eventually it all caught up with me. And and uh, I went to prison. But by the time I got to prison, I had all kinds of training. And that woke me up. My son was nine years old at the time. So I was absolutely devastated over what I'd done to him. He was grow up without a dad. Originally, I was. they said I'd be in prison for 30 years. Um, fortunately, there was a lot of good time back then. I was sentenced before 1987 on what they call the old law. Took a while for me to figure that out. But eventually, I figured out if I stayed out of trouble, I'd serve 18 and a half. I had a no parole sentence. So if I had a parole sentence, I could have gone to the parole board, but I couldn't. But staying out of trouble, you get good time. So I would serve 18 and a half. Eventually on my appeal, as my appeal went through the courts, they knocked off one count, brought my aggregate sentence from 30 to 25. And at that point, I knew I'd serve 14 and a half, which is what I did serve. But along the way, I did my time at the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners. And I got there as the AIDS epidemic, which is going into full swing. So I was at the right place at the right time. With another prison, we started the first hospice program in a prison anywhere in the world that we're aware of. And uh, we brought in outside professionals and got trained ourselves and, and recruited other prisoners to be trained. And that was a big part of my life. Uh, I, my day job was teaching school. I got a job in the prison school. I had a nine to five job Monday through Friday, helping other prisoners learn to read, get their uh, GED or get their uh, or study for college classes or learn English and so forth. And that was my day job for 14 years. But in my free time, I spent a lot of time in the hospital uh, caring for men who were dying of AIDS and cancer and liver disease. And uh, it was a huge part of my life, very transformative. I started a, a meditation group in the prison chapel that met twice a week. I was very involved in 12-step work, um, doing you know my own recovery from addiction and alcohol abuse. And um, 
So it was a very transformative time. I led a very, very disciplined life uh, um, of service and practice, practice meditation several hours every day, studied three or four hours at night, didn't sleep much. This was kind of this prison monk, but in, very engaged in that community, serving that community. So it was an incredibly transformative time for myself. And out of that grew uh, Prison Dharma Network, which is better known as Prison Mindfulness Institute, actually has three divisions. We have work we do with correctional officers under the Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety. We do peace work and train mindfulness teachers to work with disadvantaged populations and, and with a trauma-informed approach under Engaged Mindfulness Institute. And then we we bring mindfulness into prisons for the prisoners, uh, for our incarcerated fellow citizens um, uh, under Prison Mindfulness Institute, but they're all under the same nonprofit and, and then out of those hospice work we did there, I eventually started a national organization to get that while I was in prison. I started both these organizations while I was in prison. You're not supposed to be able to do that. I just did it, and they, I, they didn't stop me. I think it was too late by the time they realized it was going on. But anyway, I did it above board. I just didn't go ask permission. Um, and um, anyway, uh, as a result of National Prison Hospice Association, by the time I left prison, there were 75 Hosp prison hospices in state and federal prisons in the U.S. And and that's one thing, you know, that really helps me sleep at night. If, it, if I had to die tomorrow, I'd feel a certain amount of peace just having been able to bring that offering to the world. But again, it was I was in the right place at the right time. That's fabulous. Oh, my gosh. I, I could just listen to you all day and the things that you've accomplished. Me too. You're, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Wonderful. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to uh, focus on meditation and, and thank you for sharing with us, you know, how much meditation means to you. It is our uh, mode that we are using to bring more peace into the world. So mm -hmm. what's your thoughts on meditating and how that can help to, to up the level of peace in our world? Well, I think it's critical. I mean, whether you call it meditation or mind training or have practices for self-reflecting, awareness practices, I've been practicing meditation in one form or another for more than 50 years. My primary lineage has been the Tibetan Buddhist lineage. My first teacher was Chogun Trungpa who I met, who was the founder of Neuropa University, which is where I got my master's degree. I graduated in 1979 from a three, that three-year clinical training. I went there to connect with him, actually. I found about out about him when I was living in South America when they started then the Rope Institute in 1974. I knew I had to go there, but I've been trying to meditate on my own for a couple of years already, just out of books. I, not very successfully, but I was trying and I knew I needed more help. So I actually signed up for that program that I went to at Naropa, mostly because it was the program that had the most focused on meditation practice. Even though I had an undergraduate background in psychology, it was still my, that was the main driver for me. And uh, and and I also uh, have been practicing in a Zen tradition for a long time. While I was in prison, I connected with the work of my Zen teacher, Bernie Glassman, who was integrating Zen with social, uh, with peace work and social justice work, formed the Zen Peacemaker Order. And so I've been when I got permission from my Tibetan teacher to to study there as well. So I've been doing those two paths in parallel for a long, long time. I'm an empowered teacher in both those paths. I've been teaching meditation for about forty years now, probably, and. Um, uh, doing prison, you know, teaching, holding space for to for a meditation group was a big part of my life there. And when I got out, I started traveling and been teaching all over the world until the pandemic hit. And since then, it all shifted online. And I don't travel so much anymore. But uh, you know, I lead some Zen sessions here locally. Uh, uh, have done one or two of those a year for the last two years since the pandemic eased up a bit. But I do a lot of teaching online. 
And I've been studying all meditation traditions. I've studied deeply uh, in uh, different uh, schools of Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, Vipassana, um, different forms of Vedic meditation, uh, more secular non-dual approaches, uh, mainstream mindfulness, self-compassion practice. I really, I consider myself a, a student of the art of meditation. And uh, so I've been integrating a lot and I've developed a, a model I call neurosomatic mindfulness or neurosomatic meditation, which is a deeply embodied trauma-informed approach, which I feel really accelerates people's progress with the practice and helps more people stick with the practice because many people, so many people start meditation, they find it too difficult because they got a very busy mind and they just find themselves chasing thoughts and it's hard and it's boring and they they struggle and often they, they quit. And uh, but with the deeply embodied approach, we can take care of take advantage of well, um, ancient wisdom, but also current neuroscience to really understand that by synchronizing body and mind very directly, we can allow the mind. We don't have to struggle with thoughts. We don't have to struggle with the mind. It'll naturally quiet down. The more we yoke our attention and the and the direct physical experience of the body. Uh, the mind naturally quiets down because we're facilitating a shift from the noisy default mode network of the brain to the attention-stabilizing task-positive network. And then we can, over time, our body-mind-heart system learns to, you know, we begin with self-directed self-regulation. That's any kind of mind-training meditation technique. But over time, we can shift into auto-regulation because the body-mind system is learning to, to regulate itself and then eventually we tap into these deep internal states of flow, what have been called samadhi in some traditions, that have their own momentum. And, and we can move from kind of effortful practice to effortless practice and, and then relax into an experience of deeper states of meditation and, and clarity and realization and so forth. So that's why I teach this very deeply embodied neurosomatic, neuroscience-informed approach called neurosomatic mindfulness. And... Uh, I'll just, I don't know when this, um, uh, when this episode will air to your community, um, but I, I, I do a lot of uh, online summits throughout the year to Heart Mind Institute, and we're doing one right now that I'm very excited about that's going to run in January, but we'll run replays of it. So if, if, this, if this episode airs later than that, people will still be able to access it. It's going to be called the Art of Meditation Global Summit, and we're going to have 50, somewhere between 57 and 60 speakers from uh, Vipassana, Zen, Tibetan Mahamudra Dzogchen, Chamatha Vipassana, Vedic meditation, the Abrahamic traditions, Jewish, Christian, Sufi, non-dual direct awakening approaches, um, mainstream mindfulness, self-compassion practice, as well as neuroscience-informed approaches and neuroscience research on meditation. So I'm very excited about that. And we're, we're working hard and doing a lot of those interviews right now. Fabulous. How can people reach you, Fleet? Well, my basic website is fleetmall.com, F-L-E-E-T-M-A-U-L-L, fleetmall.com. And, and that'll take you to almost everywhere else in my world eventually. Uh, but our, our summits and courses are at HeartMind. Uh, Institute, which is heartmind.co.co, not com, but to co.co. Uh, the prison work, prisonmindfulness.org or mindfulpublicsafety.org or engagedmindfulness.org. Well, we'll have all of that information underneath your video. <laughs> and, well, I'd just uh, like to mention my book very quickly. My book, Radical Responsibility, is being uh, brought out in paperback edition January 30th. And so we're doing a big promotion now. And and people, if they want to find out about that book and download a free chapter 
or even get the new paperback edition for free, they can go to that website, which is radicalresponsibilitybook.com, radicalresponsibilitybook.com. Okay, wonderful. I'll tell you, it's been amazing to have you here as a guest. You are so informative and really so incredibly brilliant and just gorgeous energy. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a joy. Thank Thank you you for the work you're doing. It's very important work. Thank you. Imagine Peace is brought to you by 10 Million for World Peace. Join our daily seven-minute guided meditations for world peace and monthly healing circles at 10millionforworldpeace.org. Together we can create a peaceful, happy planet.